0: Would anybody here admit to learning a lesson the hard way? Oh, this could be an educational service. I've already told you about one of the lessons I learned the hard way a long time ago when I decided to stick a bobby pin in an electric socket. It's it's very exciting (laughs) for those watching, not so much for the person trying. Another lesson I learned the hard way, we, well, yeah, I guess we moved to North Carolina to go to seminary, Florida guy, central Florida, so it gets a little chilly but not really cold. Well, winter in North Carolina is officially cold, in case you didn't know, at least for me, very cold, to the point that some days when you go out to get in your car, there is ice on the windshield. And on certain days when you're in a hurry, you think, I need to get that ice off the windshield quickly so I can drive to school or take Denise to work. And so you think, what is the best way to get... Something cold off the windshield. Well, you go get a bucket of hot water, right? Anybody learn that lesson the hard way? What happens when you put hot water on a frozen windshield? You call the windshield glass replacement people is what you do. Yeah, good times. Makes for a wonderful morning. Everything just goes smoothly after that. I mean, it only can get better from there. Yes? No. A lot of us have learned some lessons the hard way. I'm sure that if I were to open the floor and let you guys share some of those, uh, we could regale each other with our stories of learning. But I want to look at actually uh, someone who learned some lessons the hard way and shared them with us, and we find it in a most unusual, I think that's the word I want to go with, book of scripture. The book of scripture we're going to look at is the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes is a fascinating book, Um, and as I said, a little bit unusual. Let's just say, if you want to pick me up, don't read Ecclesiastes, because it will not put a smile on your face. Ecclesiastes uh, was written by Solomon, who is a remarkable guy, credited as the wisest one who ever lived, the wisest man who ever lived. He ruled as king over Israel. He was David's son. In fact, early on in the book, he kind of introduces himself that way. David's son rules, and and I want to do something through this next, I don't know how many weeks, is look at some of the things that Solomon learned and some of the ways he talked about it. Hopefully that we can well, learn from him and maybe not make some of the same mistakes he did. Because as much as Solomon had going for him, as much positive as we could say about them, about him, he lived his life in a way that he had some regrets. And many of those things are recorded in this book of Ecclesiastes. Now, the good news is when he gets to the end of the book... He sort of sorts it all out. And so, just so you don't get too depressed as we go through it, we're going to start at the end of the book. Is that okay? Ecclesiastes chapter 12, like almost the last few verses of the book. Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 13, Solomon gives us his conclusion. Now, in a minute, we're going to look at one of the first verses of the book, and you'll see how much different these two are. But in Ecclesiastes 12, verse 13, this is what Solomon says. Now all has been heard. So for 12 chapters, he's written and spewed and like, here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. And then verse 14, he goes on and says, for God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. So he, he sums up this book as unusual as it is and sometimes as hard as it is to figure out you know, what, what is the, the message or what it is about there by saying, here's the conclusion, fear God and obey his commands. After all that I've tried, after all the lessons I've learned the hard way, that's what he comes down to. But like I said, he doesn't start that way. In fact, he starts Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 1 and 2 by saying this. I think it's the next slide. Meaningless. Actually, I feel like I should I don't know what, what voice would be good? How about Eeyore? You know, Winnie the Pooh. Na, na, na. Hey, meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly, you know, we just you just feel the I don't know what the, the word is for, for how I mean just Maybe some of your translations it might say vanity, vanity, all is vanity, everything is vanity. That, that word that, that shows up a lot in this book that the NIV and some more modern translations uses meaningless and maybe the, the older translations say vanity is actually a word that means vapor or breath. And it's an interesting picture here. Uh, yes, meaningless might be some sense of it or, or vanity might be some sense of it, but it's an emphasis on the fact that life is over before you know it. Life, though we put so much energy and effort into these 70 or however many years we have on this earth, it is like a vapor, Scripture says elsewhere. It's like a breath. It, it's here today and gone tomorrow. It, it's, it's over before you know it. And we put so much into it that sometimes at the end we look back and wonder, really, that that was it? It's over. How did that go? And so, so the idea that, that he states here. It's meaning, and that, that's so wild when you think about Solomon. I mean, Solomon started his life so well. He's, as I said, the son of King David, a man after God's own heart. He was the second son of David and Bathsheba. And as he comes to the point where he's going to take over the throne, he has a dream. It's in 1 Kings chapter 3, if you ever want to check up on it. He, he has a dream, and in the dream, God comes to him and makes him an offer. Wouldn't you like to get this offer? God says to Solomon, ask me whatever you want, and I will give it to you. Now, that's a promise to claim from the scriptures, right? I mean, that's your new life verse, maybe. 1 Kings chapter 3, write that down. You're all going to look it up later, I'm sure. No, but that's that's what this this vision that, that Solomon has, that's the offer God makes. And so Solomon considers, and what does he ask? He asks of God to give me discernment so that I can know good from evil. We often say Solomon asks for wisdom, but that's the the words that are used in, in that passage. Give me discernment so that I can know good from evil as I rule the people. And God responds by saying he is so amazed that Solomon would ask for that. Solomon didn't ask, he says, for long life. Solomon didn't ask for wealth. Solomon didn't ask for his enemies to come to harm. But because Solomon asked, For that kind of wisdom, that kind of discernment, God said, I'm going to give you all those other things. Hey, that was last week's summer, right? Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all those other things will be added unto you, if you want to back up. Solomon experienced that in that moment. Of course, God put a little bit of conditions on there. He said, if you follow me like your father David, then you will also have a long life. Of course, Solomon... Though he started out really good, kind of meandered and tried some different things. And in chapter 2, I want us to look at one of the things that Solomon tried. And we see in chapter 2 of the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon kind of says, hey, I had a thought as I, as I try to live my life, as I try to, to, to live this 70 or so years that, that we all have. How am I going to do it? He says in chapter 2, verse 1, I thought in my heart, come now. I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good. But that also proved to be meaningless. Solomon at some point decided in his mind he was going to pursue pleasure. Now, he's the king, right? As the king of Israel, he's got some resources at his expense. At, at his disposal. He can do some things as the king. He can take advantage of some things that maybe the average person can And because of that, because of the wealth he had, because of the power he had, because of the connections he had, he said, I'm going to pursue pleasure. Now, if you remember just a, a few chapters before this, I think it's Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and in, in the order of Scripture. In the book of Proverbs, Solomon, which who wrote many of those Proverbs, he would say something like this in Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding and all your ways acknowledge Him and He will make your path straight. Solomon wrote that. Some people here or some of your relatives have told me that's like one of your favorite scriptures. That's a verse you've memorized and try to live by. It's an awesome scripture. And in the next book, Solomon would write almost the opposite. I decided I'm going to test and find out how far pleasure can get me in this here life. And well... Boy, did he test it. Quick quiz. How many wives did Solomon have? Does anybody remember? 1 Kings chapter 11. 700 wives. As if that wasn't enough. He also had 300 concubines. Now, I'm just going to do the math. That's about... Three, if he wanted to, three different wives or concubines he could visit every day. Which would be tough because they'd all want to know, how was your year? That's a lot to fill in, you know, but nonetheless. That, that 700 wives. Now I understand, as would often be the case in that era of history, that some of those marriages would be for political expediency. As the king of Israel he would marry the king of another country or, or the daughter of a king or a princess from another country and somehow that would maybe secure an alliance or peace between the two. But what we learn in 1 Kings chapter 11 is that didn't always happen. I don't have this, the verses up on the screen for you, but I'm just going to turn over there real quick because it tells us after it says, well, let me just read beginning in verse one. King Solomon, however, loved many foreign women, <laughs> obviously, besides Pharaoh's daughter. Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, and Hittites. They were from nations about which the Lord had told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them, because they will surely turn your hearts after their gods. Nevertheless, Solomon held fast to them in love. He had 700 wives of royal birth, 300 concubines, and his wives led him astray. As Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods, And his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God as the heart of David his father had been. So in his pursuit in that one arena of pleasure, marrying 700 wives, 300 concubines, the ultimate result was that each one of those marriages pulled him further and further away from David. Now David had his own issues, yeah? I mean, I already said that Solomon is the second child of David and Bathsheba, and why is Bathsheba in David's life? Because when kings are supposed to go off to war, David's on the rooftop, and Bathsheba's a neighbor who happens to be, maybe, is that where she got her name? She was taking a, I don't know, probably not. She was bathing, he was intrigued, called her over, and it just goes downhill from there. She's pregnant, Her husband's out to war. He's a key general. It's a really incredible story for the king of Israel, a man after God's own heart as we know him. After he commits adultery with this woman, he wants to cover it up. He brings her husband home, hoping that somehow they'll enjoy their night together and he'll believe the baby's his, but the general, the the leader says, no, I won't do that while my men are out in the field. I'm not going to go into my house. And he sleeps outside. And so David comes up with the plan if he's not going to cooperate. Here's the plan when he goes back out to battle. In the heat of the moment, as he's at the front line, everybody else run away. And that's exactly what happens, and he's killed in battle. And so then David takes Bathsheba as his wife. The first child, the child that she was pregnant with, dies as punishment for that. But Solomon, the second child. And so you would think, I don't, I don't know how you tell your kid that. Listen, let me tell you about your mom. Probably not the best plan in that moment, but I'm assuming that because of David and his lessons he learned the hard way, he might have shared some of that with Solomon, and yet Solomon compounds the sins of his father David. 700, 300, 1,000 women, politically expedient or not, it ultimately was against what God had for him, and that desire to go after those things pulled him away from God, and and he would say in chapter 2, Verse 1, but that also proved to be meaningless. It proved to be vanity. It proved to be a vapor or a breath. That moment of pleasure fleeting. And there's something else in its place. That wasn't all he tried. Verse 2 of Ecclesiastes chapter 2. Laughter, I said. Anybody like to laugh? Oh, good. Three of you. The rest of you are like, where is this going? Yeah, exactly. Laughter, I said, is foolish. And what does pleasure accomplish? I tried cheering myself with wine. How about that? Tried cheering myself with wine and embracing folly, my mind still guiding me with wisdom. I wanted to see what was worthwhile for men to do under heaven during the few days of their lives. So I tried diversions. I tried other pursuits. I tried stuff. You know what? Those two things, laughter and wine—are like ways to escape. Have you noticed that that's often the reason? I mean, there are times you had a long day. Do you want to go home and watch a serious, drama-filled, tense, emotional movie? Or do you want to watch something just light that you can laugh? Most of us would probably pick lighter fare, something that doesn't tax us we probably want something that we could just kind of divert our minds and, and forget about the troubles of the day. And, and Solomon tried that. Obviously, he couldn't turn on the TV or, or rent a movie. at Well, he could, we can't rent it. I almost said Blockbuster. What? How old am I? There we go. <laughs> Who remembers Blockbuster? Yes. Who has never heard of Blockbuster? There's got to, yes, exactly. Sad. And there was one like right there not too long ago. Anyway, is the sign still up? It's been up forever they finally take it down? There we go. Anyway, there's actually, okay, this is just free. There's a Twitter account for the last Blockbuster. So if you just, it just kind of throws crazy things out. Um, anyway, that was probably not worth anything. Nonetheless, there it is. You know, we want to do that. And, and here's what we do. You remember these? Anybody have this growing up? I brought my, one of my favorite toys. Remember it? Okay, I had to open it. I got to make sure. I, I had somebody... Put in only three shapes, it's to see if I could figure out which side they went on. But but you know these, right? You give them to your kids, and you got to match the shape with the thing. See, it works there; it doesn't work there, right? Are you not familiar with this toy? <laughs> I mean, I can give you each a chance if you. This is this is a smile. It smile doesn't fit there, and. It doesn't fit there. There, Oh, it, it fits right there. Yes, there we go. And, oh, I forgot this. And then the star. And, and if you've ever been teaching your kids shapes, this is a great tool to use that. And, and, and you sit down with them, and they learn that, you know, you, the star goes in here. The star is not, well, what would that be, a diamond or a square? And no matter how, and then this is a, a, a six-pointed star, so it won't go on the, oh, wait, it's a five-pointed star. No, it's a star. It goes in there. yeah. I had a point somewhere. That fits in both of them. Never no matter how hard you try, you cannot put this shape in this circle or in this smile or in this square. And I have seen kids try awfully hard for hours on end to put this thing in the wrong spot. And it, it is remarkable and you try gently oh, that's not right, honey. That's not right, honey. and slowly you try to encourage them till finally they get it right now now we were fortunate um, I get in trouble for this, but but price was good with shapes in fact his he could say parallelogram at like three or four years old, which was really remarkable. I, I'm amazed by that. I don't even always know what that is, but he was good at it. Um, but you know this is just something Here, here's my point. I really have a point with this. Yeah, yeah, I hope so. Is that what you said? Good, good. There we go. I just needed a few minutes off. I needed to divert myself. Um, this is kind of like Solomon. See, he, he had so much going for him, but he still felt for some reason an emptiness in his life, and he looked around for things that would fill that emptiness, and he would try to look at the pursuit of pleasure and relationships or, or laughter and that diversion or, or the pursuit of, of, of wine, he said, and that diversion. And he would try to shove that pursuit somehow in that hole in his life. And no matter how hard he tried, it just won't fill it. It just won't fit. It might get your mind off things for a brief while, but ultimately he would find out no matter what it was, we'd come back to his favorite word, vanity, meaningless, vapor breath whatever the case may be there and over and over again he would do that there are so many people maybe in in Hollywood even that we could talk about we think about in our world the celebrity culture and it is remarkable to me how often These uh, young people, for the most part, rise to fame, and you would think have the world at their fingertips, all the money they could possibly want, and how often does the end of the story come back to they were in rehab here or there because the life they were living and the pursuit and the excess of their life ultimately proved to be too much for them. Why? Because there's something about us There's something about how God made us in his image that none of those other things will provide meaning. None of those things will ultimately fill that hole in our lives, no matter how wholly we pursue them, no matter how much effort and energy and time and expense we put into going after those things, none of those things will ever be adequate. In fact, one of the young stars that, tripped up with issues of alcohol was uh, Shia LaBeouf. You might know him from some of the movies, including the Transformer movies, and I think he was in and several other ones uh, that, that you like. And he, at about 23, kind of got to a point where, where he needed to go into rehab. And one of the things that, that he was talking about in an interview was the insecurities that came in spite of his fame, in spite of how much money he made, he still felt insecure. And this is how he said it. He said, I have no idea where this insecurity comes from, but it's like a God-sized hole. And if I knew, I'd fill it and I'd be on my way. That doesn't mean he tried to fill it with God. It just means he recognized there was an emptiness in his life. And I think his use of the word God-sized wasn't like, the God-shaped hole of, of I think, Augustine or one of the philosophers then, but rather it was this gaping hole in my life. I couldn't find enough to fill it, and out of that came this great insecurity, and you would think Solomon wouldn't have that issue. He, what, what would he have to be insecure about? He was the king. He was the son of David, and what was one of the greatest things he could do but build the very temple of God? In fact, in the next Part of Ecclesiastes chapter 2, he tells us that another way he tried to pursue things to to deal with the meaninglessness of life was in the pursuit of projects. He says in verse 4, I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself and planted vineyards. That's an important phrase there, isn't it? Houses for myself. We'll get back to that in a minute. I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made reservoirs to water groves of flourishing trees. So so Solomon poured himself into these projects. Now now notice it says, I built houses for myself. Now I said he built the temple. You know how long it took him to build the temple? Seven years. That's a pretty major project. It was the centerpiece of Jerusalem. It kind of sits on the hill. In fact, the The pilgrims to Jerusalem always were going up to Jerusalem because Jerusalem is situated higher than the surrounding areas. And at one of the highest points on the Temple Mount, it's often called, one of the highest points in Jerusalem is where the temple was built. And so Solomon, for seven years, devoted the resources of Israel to the exacting specifications of God to build this temple. And it was magnificent. And on the day of its dedication, if you read about that, the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And it was manifest by, you could see physically the glory of God. All those who were there were amazed at the celebration of dedicating it. Well, the temple's done. Now what I'm going to do, I'm going to build myself a house. Guess how long it took him to build his own house. You would think if it took him seven years to build the temple, it should take approximately 13 to build your house, right? He worked for 20 years on those two projects, just doing the math. Seven for the temple, 13 years for his house. Anybody done any home improvement projects? Anyone? Anyone want to admit that? Is it true that they always take twice as long and cost twice as much? Can I get an amen? Is there a witness? Yes, indeed, that is how it works. Anybody watch HGTV? have any Property Brothers fans here. Flip or flop? How about everybody's favorite, fixer-upper. I got two words for you, (laughs) ship-lap. Like three people watch that show, apparently. Maybe four. Really, nobody watches fixer-upper? Seriously, admit it. Raise your hand, you're in safe company. Don't leave me hanging. Okay, good. I think ship-lap's one word, isn't it? That was supposed to be funny. Anyway, never mind. (laughs) Solomon took all of that advice, and then some, and poured himself into this project, lost himself in this project. But, but just even in that, we see the fact that things just were out of whack. Seven years to build the temple of God, the thing that David desperately begged God that he could build, only to be told his son would do it, and then 13 years on his vanity project. Interesting, that's the word that he comes back to at the end of all that vanity, vanity, meaningless, meaningless. Verse 7, he goes on and he says, As if that's not enough. I bought male and female slaves and had other slaves who were born in my house. I also owned more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. I amassed silver and gold for myself. There's that phrase again. And the treasure of kings and provinces. I acquired men and women singers and a harem. He's got 700 wives and 300 concubines, and as if he has any free time, he needs a harem too. Just obviously, he's doing anything, trying to find any sliver of pleasure to try to make sense of his life that it doesn't make sense. And the delights of the heart of man, I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me. In all this, here's the remarkable thing, my wisdom stayed with me. You know, God promised him that he would be wise. And he says, even through all of these pursuits, my wisdom stays with me. And you want to say, why didn't you use it, right? Is there a difference between having wisdom and using wisdom? Let's have some fun, shall we? Yeah, yeah, let's have some fun. I don't know, it'll be fun for me. I don't know if you'll like it. Who can name one of the Ten Commandments? Just raise your hand. Okay, Sonny, I saw your hand. Thou shalt not kill. Shalt not kill. You picked a good one, because you might have anticipated. And so so that's wisdom, right? Thou shalt not kill. Well Give me another one. Who else had a hand? Yes, Renee. Honor thy, Honor thy father and mother. That's a good one too, right? What else we got? There's only eight to go. <laughs> There's only eight Thou to go. Thou shalt not steal. Go ahead, Karen. Don't put other gods before me. What else we got? Don't lie. Something about neighbors. Covet- we could. That's, that's about half, right? And if we spent the time, I'm sure, in this well-educated spiritual group, not only could we get the top ten commandments, we could get all 613 commandments of the law, right? So having said that, Somebody said, thou shalt not kill, Kill, right? And, and then Jesus took that and said, you have heard that it was said, thou shalt not kill. But I say to you, you remember this part? Don't even hate your brother in your heart. So all of us, thou shalt not kill. Commandment, has anybody here, should, I don't have to make you admit it, you can just deal with this on your own, <laughs> ever hated your brother or sister in your heart? Uh Uh-oh. Dang, I hate that part. Okay, let's see. We got, Thou shalt honor your father and mother. Okay, do we have any kids here with their parents? Oh, we got a couple right here. (laughs) Yes, indeed. Should I ask you or should I ask mom and dad? Mom and dad. Have these young'uns ever not honored you by obeying everything you've said? We'll, we'll let you pray about that. We don't want to put him on the spot. Did somebody say lie? Somebody say lie. Who has told a lie? This is a safe one, right? You don't feel bad about admitting that, yeah. See, knowing wisdom, not the same as using, enacting on wisdom. And Solomon said, in all this, my wisdom stayed with me. And you wonder, how do you just kind of push that down? if God gave you this great gift, and I think that's just testimony to the faithfulness of God in his life, that he kept that gift in the midst of all of these things we've just looked at and in this one chapter, this half of a chapter, where he recounts the things that he pursued, trying in some way to fill that hole in his life. And when you look at this, this last part is really kind of in material uh, goods. Um, you know, that's that's kind of what's at issue there, that he amassed all these things and he had all these things going for him. Um, You think, well, you know, maybe we don't feel like that's an issue for us, but here's the phrase, I think, that shows up in our thinking, if not in our vocabulary, and it's the phrase, if only. You ever use the phrase, if only? I think I'd be happier if only... And then something goes in that blank. I'd be happier if only... I made a little more money, or if only I, I, I was able to to move into a bigger house, or if only I was married, if you're single, or if only, w- whatever it is, there's always that thing out there, if only, in the keys, if only I had a bigger boat, yeah? <laughs> Everybody here is like, I'd be happier if only I had a bigger boat. Whatever the case, we have that. If if this happens, if I could just get this blank filled in, then somehow I would be happy. You know, they did a a survey. It was published in Psychology Today sometime back. And I guess it's more of a study than a survey. But those who who are sort of keyed into these things say, in your life, circumstances only account for about 10% of your happiness. About 10% of what makes you happy, comes out of your circumstances. And what they found, having said that, is that there were people that tended to be happy no matter what their circumstances were. And there were also people that tended to be unhappy no matter what their circumstances were. And if you change the circumstances of the unhappy person, they remained largely unhappy. And if you change the circumstances, even for the worse For a happy person, they remained largely happy and contented. See, Solomon in this passage says, I put all my focus on my circumstances, my outward stuff, whether it's the relationships and the pleasure that could be derived from that, whether it was from laughter and folly, whether it was from the things I could drink or imbibe, the the addictions that they lead to. I put my, my focus on the external of how much money I had and, and how much influence I had and how much power I had. And I found out all of those things don't really make that much of a difference in my life. I still come to the end and come right back to vanity, vanity, meaningless, meaningless, utterly meaningless. In fact, he uses a, a phrase elsewhere in, in uh, actually more than once in, ch- in verses 10 and 11. He goes on and says, Um, I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my work, and this was the reward for all my labor. Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. Everything was meaningless. There's the conclusion. All that pursuit of pleasure and delight and fun and wealth, everything is meaningless. I love that phrase, chasing after the wind. That shows up a lot in this book as well. And a better look at it, uh, one of the linguists looked at the phrase and, and says a better translation or better way of understanding it isn't you know chasing after something you can't catch because it's you know, meaningless and not there. No, it's better uh, shepherding the wind trying to harness and control that which is inherently unharnessable and controllable now anybody sail here i know we have some sailors from time to time i sailed once it was at america outdoors when i was in college that's a long time ago it was still there they had sailboats our college group came down from pba and they said okay sailboats are part of the weekend go just grab a sailboat and go thought it sounded like great fun Wind was blowing. I'm like, what could possibly go wrong? (laughs) Hopped in the boat, and that thing took off. I was like, this is easy. This is great. How do I get back? Because the wind was blowing that away, and shore was that away, right? I mean, I thought, how hard is it? I've harnessed the wind. Now, I know there are experienced sailors in this room that could probably explain in detail how to get from out there back here, but here's how I do it. I wait for the guy with the motor to come get me <laughs> and drag me back. That's easier than that whole tacking thing, I figure, because, you know, those boats are an investment to the guy on shore, and he's watching these crazy college students take off in their sailboats going, yeah, this is not going to end well. But, you know, so we think of shepherding the wind or harnessing the wind we get, but shepherding to somehow uh, what's the old phrase, herding cats? Anybody cat lover here? We'll pray for you. No. Um, cat, lo- herding cat. You know, if you have a dog, dog is man's best friend. What do they call cats? Demons? Demons? Is that it? Okay. <laughs> I didn't know. Good to know. I know we have a few. Yeah, th- the idea of, of herding cats is kind of the, the joke there. But that take herding cats to the nth degree. Shepherding, controlling moving, tending to the wind, it's impossible. It, you cannot do it. And no matter how hard you try, no matter how much effort you put into doing something that's ultimately impossible to do, you get nowhere. Dr. Henry Cloud is a Christian psychologist, and, and he wrote a book, um, The Law of Happiness, actually. And one of the things he says in that book is when you pursue the things that do not have the power to make you happy, you are then ignoring the things that do. And much of our lives, Solomon would say much of his life was spent pursuing the things that did not have the power because he's just given the the list of things that he tried. None of them worked. Pursuing the things that he thought could make him happy that ultimately couldn't. And in doing that, he neglected the one thing that could. Now... I'm sure we could look at a lot of examples of that the one that comes to my mind of people that in our world might be the ones that we would say had it all together was when we were at college Denise and I were there and her sister Heather was there too and she worked for a firm that did some uh, work for some Palm Beach folks and you know when you cross the bridge into Palm Beach you've entered not just another zip code you've entered another realm of reality I mean it is incredibly amazing to go to Palm Beach and One of the clients that she worked with, personally, uh, was a Palm Beach resident. If I were to say this individual's name, you would know it. Um, Very famous individual, as are many people there, uh, had in his home uh, Emmy Awards that he had won. He had, as you walked in, these two elephant tusks, I guess, that framed the sides of his door. I mean, you know, sportsman, obviously, from that, beautiful home, all the things you could think of. But like many people that have all the, even like Solomon, that had all the trappings of wealth, all the the pictures of success, ultimately that wasn't fulfilling. Much of the life of many of the rich and famous, whether it's the celebrities on TV we talked about earlier, or or even the the wealthy that, that we see portrayed as having it all together, turns out when you peel back the curtain, you find out they're not happy. They're not fulfilled. They're the same struggles that you and I face, the same needs, the same desires that aren't met by the best that this world has to offer. So what is it? If you're pursuing things that cannot make you happy and you're ignoring the things that do, what is then the thing, what is that underlying thing that you should be pursuing, we might say, that, as it were, that right shape that fits in the whole of your life? And I think I didn't put this up there, but it's in the book of Psalms. I believe it's Psalm 37, 4, but I could be wrong. If you want to look it up and tell me if I'm wrong, that's good. I'm I'm fine with that. But it goes something like this. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Is that the right address? Somebody needs to tell me, because I made a mistake last time. It's right. It's right. I say that because, was it last week? I, I, I shorted the fruit of the Spirit one. And that's okay. Because somebody called me on it. And do that. Listen, I'll say this. I've said it before. I'll say it again. Don't, just because I stand up here and say these things, open your Bible. Make sure I'm right. I make mistakes. And I don't want to lead you wrong. Because here's the thing if I make a mistake, one day I got to answer for it. And I'd rather answer to you because you said, hey, I don't think that was right, than have to answer to him. You know what I'm saying? So help me. Help me help you. No. So Psalm 37, 4. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Now, a lot of people say, they look at it this way. They say, if you just delight yourself in God, he'll give you whatever you want. You know, we want that Solomon dream offer. We want that, tell me what you want, and I'll give it to you. But I don't think that's what that verse means. Who created us? We we see in the very beginning of Scripture, we're made in the image of God. God created us uniquely, crafted us in a a particular way, gave the breath of life into Adam, and, and we share in that unique aspect of our creation. And I think when God says, I will give you the desires of your heart, he's saying, as your creator, I know what your heart really needs. I know what shape your heart really is. And when you delight yourself in me, you'll find that I'll fill that shape perfectly. I will give you the desire, not the desire that you think you want. Because you know, what we want, as we just saw, seen in Solomon, isn't always what works. But what God as our creator knows we need, when we delight ourselves in Him, I think His promises, then I will give you your heart's desire, your true heart's desire, the heart's desire that you've suppressed and pushed aside, sometimes in the pursuit of other things. I will fill that part of you that's uniquely made by me and for me if you delight yourself in me. Solomon asked for wisdom to know good and evil, to discern good and evil so that he could govern well. And God, as we just saw, let him keep that wisdom, but he never turned that wisdom it seems, toward the God who was uniquely able to fill the deepest needs of his life. We'll see some other things in the next few weeks that Solomon pursued, but what we can learn, I hope what we will learn through this process and even today, is that there will be carrots the world will dangle in front of you. In fact, I think the enemy knows the carrot that works particularly well as bait for you. He knows you know, just where to cast it and just how to to reel it in or wiggle the line or whatever you fishermen do out there that catch the fish he knows that he knows you he studied you and he'll throw it out and he'll dangle it and he'll wait for you to bite and there's a lot of things solomon had his weaknesses solomon had his weaknesses exploited even but ultimately as one that God created and as one that Jesus died for, we were made for relationship with our Heavenly Father. Not for the pursuit of things that are available here on earth, although those things sometimes enhance our life and we're able to use them to further the work of God, they're not the pursuit of our life. They're not the end for which we were made. Rather, it's only as we delight ourselves in the Lord, as we find in Him the true fulfillment of all we need, that he meets that deep desire of our heart that he uniquely put there and that only he can fill. Let's pray together. Gracious God, I am grateful for what you have done for us through your son Jesus. I'm amazed that that you would go to those lengths for us that he would suffer on the cross and die in that cruel and torturous way for me. For someone who does not deserve it and who for times in his life thumbed my nose at you and went the other way. But Lord, I thank you that your love isn't dependent on my actions, but you demonstrated it in that while I was still a sinner, Christ died. And I thank you that that gift of salvation is truly the the greatest need of my life. Whether I acknowledge it or not, whether I've come to that conclusion or not, you acted in history to meet the deepest and greatest need of, of all humanity when you made possible a restored relationship with our creator in whose image we were made. And Lord, today, as we come to our time of response, I pray that if there is someone here who has never realized the gift that you have offered of a relationship, a renewed and restored relationship with you through your son, Jesus, that today, might be a day where, where they come to that place of faith. But we've all tried different things. We've all pursued things that we thought would make us happy. We thought would scratch that itch that only uh, the love of our eternal God can fill. And so, Father, if there's someone here today who needs to turn away from whatever pursuit it was and turn to you in faith, may today be the day that they meet the one who knows them and created them and who loves them more than they can know. Lord, we give you now these moments of response. May you have your way as you call us back to yourself. I ask in Jesus' name.